Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're here with us at South City Church, man. This is, I don't know about you, but I just love being with you. I do. I, I get so excited to be with you on Sunday mornings, and this has been such a sweet few weeks as we've uh, looked at the vision of our church. Something also that I love very much is our city. How many people just love Little Rock? One, two, three. Okay. No. Some of you are going, no, let's not get crazy here. This is, I love this city. God has given me the privilege of traveling around the country. I've, I think I've been in every state but one. I don't think I've ever been to Alaska. I have to remedy that. But uh, this is a great city. I love this city. I've been in different places around the world. And I, there's just something special about our Kansans and people from Little Rock that can connect uh, across racial barriers or whatever the case may be, socioeconomic barriers. We just, we can connect and just have a good conversation. Just throw in the mention of the Razorbacks and you're, you're golden, right? I love this city. In fact, I think it's number one, the number one city in the country. At least that's what some of these statistics tell me. Little Rock uh, tops the list of the most dangerous city in U the United States under 200,000. Weird number one. Yeah, I, I thought we were bigger than 200,000, but uh, anyway. Um, nearly 14% of adults lack basic literacy skills in Little Rock. Um, Arkansas has the fourth highest poverty rate in the country. Arkansas is in the top 10 states for meth arrests. In 2009, Arkansas had the number one divorce rate for men in the United States. Not the number one we want, right? Not the number one we want. And, and to be fair, I did see an article, I think Kiplinger or somebody said it's the number one small town to live in. So we'll go with that one. How about? We have some issues, don't we? Our city has some issues. We have some things that we need to uh, be aware of, know about, and change. And I believe that's one of the reasons that God has placed us here for such a time as this. This may not be the number one city in your book for uh, your life or for where you live for this time, but the reality is this is the place you are. This is the place that God has brought you, and so let's do all that we can to make it the best place we can, right? Some other concerns for our city. Racism, a great concern. Many people that I talked to, I tried to kind of uh, talk to several people around the city that, that work within the city and know about some of the, the struggles that we have as a city. This was the number one issue on many of their lists, racism. You know, in our, in our jail system right now, 42% of the men in our, in our prison system are African-American. Some of you say, well, that's probably about right, about half this, half, no. The black population in the state is 16%. So to say there's 42% African-American men in our prison system, something's not right. And I think racism is probably at the heart of that. We have at-risk children with school issues, with drug issues, with gang issues. We have at-risk families with broken homes and missing fathers. And foster care is out of control. There's just so many kids, the foster care system can't even keep them all. Speaking of prison, the incarceration rate, it's, it's, there's a better chance when you get out of prison, there's a better chance that you'll go back than not. 
a 53% recidivism rate in Arkansas. We have broken governmental structures. Our, our welfare system in many ways incentivizes dependence. In many, in many ways, we're not helping people, we're, we're holding them down by sort of helping. And at some point in the last few years, Arkansas was number four in our education, I'm sorry, number 49 in the education system in the country. Number 49, these are not the concerns, uh, these are not the, the standings, the ratings that we want as a city or a state. But I, I, I say this to you this morning, I think the greatest concern we have is this one. Fellowship, when I was at Fellowship a few years ago, we, um, we did a study and we tried to get a, a, put a number uh, to the group of people in central Arkansas who were disconnected from a church or church community, people who don't know Jesus. And so they, they added in all the church numbers, they did, you know, they did all they could with the mathematics of it all. But if you were to basically give an hour radius around the city of Little Rock, central Arkansas, maybe all the way up to Conway or Russellville and all the way down maybe to Malvern, something like that. There, the number we came up with is that there are 600,000 people who don't know Jesus in central Arkansas. I want you just to sit in that for a moment. Half a million people within an hour's drive from here don't know Jesus. And isn't that consistent with our standings? <laughs> isn't that consistent with our issues and our problems? I think it is because if we can address that issue, I believe God will help us address the rest. What does it mean for us as a church? Well, we've been in this series, this is our fifth week, talking about our vision statement. What does it mean for South City Church? What does it mean for us? South City Church exists to love God and all people, right? By becoming authentic disciples who make disciples, and we spoke about this last week, for the glory of God, and today we speak about this, for the good of the city. I believe this with all my heart. Listen, I believe if we will love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind, all of our strength, when we do that, we will love all people. We will love all people. We'll be, we'll be able to love our enemy, our neighbor, our friends, the people we struggle with. We'll be able to love all people. And when we're loving God that way and we're loving each other that way, we'll become authentic disciples. People who want to learn, people who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And when we're becoming the disciples he wants us to be, we'll be obedient to him, right? We'll do what he says to do. And what did Jesus say to do? He said to go into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all the things I've taught you, right? And he said he'll be with us. When we do that, we will make disciples. And it will bring such glory to God. And naturally, naturally when we're doing those things, God will change our homes. He'll change our families. He'll change our surroundings. He'll change this community and our city. I believe it with all my heart. South City Church can make a difference. I believe it. I believe it. But listen, changing our city, it's not just a byproduct of all those things. It's not just something we just kind of hope will happen as long as the other things happen as well. No, we have to be intentional. We have to be super creative. We have to be unbelievably committed. We have to have a long 
uh, range goal and vision for change. It doesn't happen overnight. I, I mentioned fellowship. You know, fellowship has been uh, so faithful in this community. I'm so thankful for Fellowship Bible Church and their commitment to the community. I'm glad, I'm glad Rick, you're here this morning. Rick has, grew up in this church, right? Temple Baptist Church. But as he's been a part of fellowship for the last several years, he was a part of a thing called ShareFest. He helped lead that event, and it was a great, great thing. People, the yards being cleaned and, and people coming together, churches working together, Rick helped do that. Fellowship has really sort of led the way in our community to make a better community, to make a better city. And you know what? They've had to have a very long-term, long-range goal because things don't happen overnight. Just now are they starting to see some things change in the adoption and foster care system, in the prison system that they invested in a long time ago. We have to have a long-range vision. It's not going to change overnight. Well, we wrap up this series today with the good of the city. I love this city, and I believe that God loves it a lot more than I do. I know He does. I, I grew up in uh, sort of towards this. I've already always considered myself sort of a city kid. I grew up in the Heights area. My father's business was down at the bottom of Cantrell Hill, Hill, sort of in the Riverdale area. So we, I kind of went back and forth to there, and I went to school at Hall. And so I was kind of considered myself a city kid, always messing with my wife that she's a country girl and I'm a city boy. Uh, but even where we grew up used to be sort of the country. It used to be the suburbs, if I'm right. Is that right? And uh, I, I, I don't know. I've always kind of just enjoyed being around the city, but not necessarily right in it. I don't know about you, but I... I can breathe a little easier in the not-so-much city, <laughs> in the country, in the outskirts of the city. Even in downtown Little Rock, it's just, you know, with buildings, with one-way streets, and that's not so bad anymore. But I remember as a kid learning to drive, not really wanting to get into the city. I think, uh, I think that happens for us because we associate the city with all these issues that I mentioned in the beginning. And see, the reality is, even though I kind of like it in the country a little bit, and that's a little preference for me, that's not necessarily God's preference. God loves the city. He loves the city. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Um, <laughs> it's just, it just puts it perfectly. It says this. It says, cities quite literally have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. How can we not be drawn to such masses of humanity if we care about the same things God cares about? See, we're all created in His image. And when you put a whole bunch of people together, there's that much con concentrated image of God in one place. His heart is drawn to that place, and the reality is our heart should be as well. Should be as well. Here's an interesting thing about cities. 70% of the world now, right now, lives in cities. It's becoming more urban every single year. In fact, five million people move from the country to the city every year. That, that's kind of like, or you've heard of Rio de Janeiro, right? A beautiful, crazy city of about five million people. That's, that's like a Rio de Janeiro popping up every year around the world. Five million people going to the city every year. Uh, God loves cities, and I think Paul knew that if he, on his missionary journeys, if he could speak 
the gospel to the city, he could reach more people at one time. I think he knew that if he went to the cities, that hopefully that would disseminate into the villages and into the towns. So we see in, in uh, the book of Acts, we see Paul's missionary journeys. He goes to Athens, which is the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. We see him go to Corinth, which is a, a commercial city uh, for the Roman world. We see him go to Ephesus, which is like the spiritual center of the, of the time. There were many um, temples they were hedon, hedonistic and heathen and, and cult-like, but that was a spiritual, albeit not godly society. It was a spiritual society. He went there. It was a city. He went to Rome ultimately, right? The capital of military and political power. Because he knew if he could make influence in those places, he could reach the most people. Instead of being drawn to cities, like I, I confess to you, sometimes we're repelled by them. It's just saying, hey, we've got a Saturday. Let's go downtown and hang out downtown. We go, let's, no, let's go for a ride in the country, right? <laughs> sometimes we just, we sense that there's chaos. And you know what? We're even so judgmental. We say, man, the city's got so many problems. The city's got so many problems. There's so much crime in the city. There, there's so many issues in the city with drugs and violence. And, listen, in the same way that there's a, a concentration of the image of God in the city, there's a concentration of the human heart in the city. And what comes with the human heart? Brokenness, sinfulness, right? That's the reason for those issues. Let us not stand back and try to claim that we don't have our own issues and that there's not sin and brokenness in the country because there's just as much in the country as there is in the city. There's just not as many people. Well, this morning I want to talk about three stories as we talk about how God wants to use South City Church for the good of the city. And this first story is about a gentleman who, uh, well, just to be honest with you, he's racist. He's prejudiced. He, he not only hates the city, he hates the people. And God tells him, I want you to go to that city and I want you to take that message that I'm going to give you to the city. <laughs> he, well, you'll see. You know the story. Let's look at it. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. Now we're not going to read all the story. I'm going to interject some pieces of it. I heard a preacher say one time about Jonah, an old preacher one time, say something about Jonah just, you know, he was in the wrong place. He just had a wrong uh, attitude for what God wanted to do in his heart. And he just began to go down, 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 down. So he went down to Joppa, then he went down to the port, and then he went right down into the ship. He just, and that's what happens. Our lives just sort of downward spiral when they're not in the place that they should be with the Lord. We just go down, down, down. That's kind of what happens, right? We know, we know what happens uh, with Jonah, right? He's, he's in the boat. He's disobeyed God. He said, I'm not going to those people or to that place. In fact, I'm going to go the opposite direction. He gets on the boat. And he's, I, I can just see this picture of Jonah. He's sitting on the boat. He's, maybe he's in the hull or he's out. I don't know where he's at. 
storm comes up and it is a crazy storm. The sailors are freaking out. They, they sail all the time, but this is a different storm. They're about to die. And Jonah's just over there like this. Jonah's just over there. He knows what's going on. He knows what the deal is with this storm, doesn't he? He knows it's about him. He says, guys, um, if you'll throw me over, this storm will end. And they're like, no way. We, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll sail through it. We'll make the best of it. We'll, we'll weather the storm, right? He's like, no, no. You got to just trust me. I'm the problem. And then we begin to see Jonah become suicidal. He becomes suicidal. He says, just throw me over. I'll just die. Just, and I'll fix this and you won't have to die. Well, eventually they oblige him, right? And they toss him overboard. He no longer hits the water that the storm just stops. And I can just see in my mind's eye, Jonah just beginning to sink down thinking, well, this is it, right? And now what happens? Nope. Big fish comes along and, and swallows Jonah. So now he's just more hacked off. He's not dead. He wanted to be dead. Now he's in a stinky belly of a big fish surrounded by other fish, acids, enzymes. This is not a happy place. This is not a, well, this is interesting. Look at all those fish. This is, I wish I were dead. For three days, he's in the belly of this fish. And it's, you know what's interesting that God does when we get in places we don't want to be sometimes? It's amazing how our commitment level to Jesus goes, doesn't it? In the belly of the fish, Jonah goes like this, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to, to do. I'll say what you want me to say. Just let, let me go, uh, please. Three days, he's in this awful place. He spit up on the uh, shore. He gets out. Let's look at what it says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. <laughs> go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Look at this change of heart. It's unreal. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. It's amazing what getting in a corner, right? Being put in a position where God disciplines us sometimes. It's amazing how it changes our attitudes. I have two little girls, and I love them. They're angels some of the percentage of the time. A large percentage of the time, they're not angels, and I have to discipline them, right? And it's amazing the times where they're just acting out, doing crazy things. I discipline them, and then... It's amazing their attitude adjustment is wonderful. Yes, Daddy, I'll help. Thank you. That's amazing. And that's the same thing that happens with us. It's what happened with Jonah. His attitude changed a little bit. At least he decided to obey. So what happens in the story? He goes to the city of Nineveh. The Bible tells us it's so big that you could walk for three days through the city and never get all the way through the city. That's a big city, isn't it? That's, that's a pretty big city. Well, he's haphazardly going about his way, and he's saying to the people, 40 more days, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I, I bet he doesn't even have any emotion or passion in his voice. He's obeying, but he's not really happy about it. It's what I call the grumpy missionary. Have you ever known any of those? A few of them. He's the grumpy missionary. He's 40 more days with a sign or whatever, and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. But you know what? I'm so thankful to tell you this morning. It doesn't matter even sometimes the brokenness of the messenger. God will get his message through to the people he wants. That's, a good, that's good news for me this morning, y'all. Even the condition of his heart wasn't just perfect, but God still used him. He still got his message across. People began to do what they needed to do. It was appropriate. They began to repent. 
They put on sackcloth and ashes. The Bible says from the greatest, from the king, all the way down to the lowliest of those. They begin to repent and say, God, we're sorry. And you know what God did? He was kind. He, he removed uh, the plans for calamity or the plans for destruction for Nineveh. He chose to not move forward with those plans because they repented. He relented. Well, Jonah's not happy about this. He's not happy at all. In fact, the, the Bible says he goes kind of to the outskirts of town where he can still see the city and he just sort of sets up, I just sets up his lawn chair like, let the fire rain down, God. Can't wait. Maybe he wasn't uh, privy to the fact that people were really hearing the message and becoming repentant. He wanted to see these people destroyed. He hated them. And as I've read this, I realize how many of us have said about another people around the world, God, it'd probably just best if you wiped them off the face of the earth. It's easy for us to go to that place sometimes, isn't it? Jonah was not happy that God was a merciful, loving God. This is what he says to the Lord in chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Here he goes again, suicidal. Now, Lord, just take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I would rather die than to see those people Receive your forgiveness and your grace. He doesn't see that the, the extent of his prejudice, brokenness. He doesn't see the extent of how jacked up he is. That he would rather die than see God be merciful to someone else. He saw himself higher, better than someone else. And by the way, that's what prejudice is. You know, one of the things about this story that just amazed me and I love is that God still sees in Jonah potential. He still brings teachable moments to Jonah. So what happens is as Jonah's sitting out there in his lawn chair waiting on fire to rain down on Nineveh, God causes a plant to grow up and, and cover him. Oh, this is nice. Shade tree, if you will. He's hanging out. Oh, this is, this is a perfect seat to see what's about to happen. Fire raining down. I can't wait. And then the next day, the Lord sends a worm to destroy the plant, and the plant falls over, and Jonah gets baked by the sun, and Jonah's hacked off. He's like, God, what about this plant? I had this perfect plant. And God says in verse 10 of 4, let's look at it. You, you're concerned about this plant? Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also so many animals? 
Isn't it amazing how, how patient God is with us? How patient he is with Jonah even in this moment? At some point you just think God just goes, zap, I'm tired of that attitude, you know? I'm done with this guy. No, he, he's still causing teachable moments to happen around him. To say, can't you get this, Jonah? And the book ends here. God's trying to show us, have compassion on this city. Have compassion on these people. You care more about this plant than you care about 120,000 souls. And and listen, I'm an animal lover. And now we have complete proof that God is too, right? I love this little tag at the end. And, And also all the animals? Jonah, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? God wants us to have compassion and mercy on people who don't know him. Just a side note here. See the method in which they hear? You see, God sent a messenger. As messed up as he was, he sent a messenger so that they would hear. They repented, right? God still works in that method. He still longs to send a messenger to those who don't hear. And guess what? That's you. And that's me. Here's our second story this morning. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. If you don't have, we'll have some scripture on the screen. But I want to just give you some contextual background before we get into the, to the uh, story, if we can. So Jeremiah, we know him as the weeping prophet, right? The reason he's weeping all the time is because nobody listens to him. He pleads and pleads with Israel, please repent. Please change your, your ways, your lives. Obey God. And they don't listen. That sound like anybody you know? Sounds like me a lot of the time. They don't listen. They don't listen. And finally, he prophesies and says, okay, Israel, this is going to be ugly, and I'm not going to be popular. Here's the deal. The reality is Babylon is going to come. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He's going to destroy the city, and he's going to take many of you hostage. And and the people did not like that. In fact, they they almost killed him for his message. One of the things that uh, hostile uh, or, or armies do with hostile communities, so if they're, if they're at war, if you're at war with someone back in that time period, and you had a hostile en- enemy that you overtake, and you're tired of fighting these people, one of the things they would do is cultural assimilation. So they, they'd take the leaders of that community, princes, kings, queens, artisans, the, the upper echelon, the elite, and they would take them back to their country so that they would do cultural assimilation. In other words, if we can cause them to lose their identity, then we don't have to fight them anymore. And that's what they did with the Israelites. They marched the upper echelon of people 800 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they get there, and I guess it was okay for them to sort of live outside of the city. So these people, this uh, group of Israelites, they live on this place called the Kabar Canal. And they're trying to make their home among each other and not over here with these people, right? And in fact, they, they're just kind of camping out. They're hoping that this is not going to take that long. God, how long do we, how long do we have to be here? Can we, we want to go back. Like, what's, what's the plan? In fact, one of their uh, prophets, Hananiah, says, hey, you'll only have to be here for two years and then you can go back. The problem is... Hananiah was wrong. He wasn't listening to God. He was making up what he wanted to make up. Jeremiah had to tell Hananiah, you're wrong. 
and because you've prophesied against the Lord, you're going to die this year, and he did. Side note, if you're living apart from Jesus, apart from the life that God has created for you to live in him, you will always be able to find a preacher that will tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear so that you can feel good about how you live. They wanted to hear that it's just going to be, uh, oh, just a couple, couple years, I, we can do that. We'll camp out, we'll hide out, we won't settle in. It wasn't true. And unfortunately, in our society, we've got a lot of preachers that are preaching a word that is not true to Scripture. It's not consistent with the Word of God. They're giving people a lie. Well, so that's the background for our story and our letter here from Jeremiah. He sends this letter. And we read it together in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Eliza, son of Shepan, and to Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years, not two, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You ever heard that verse before? I know the plans I have for you, right? That's a, it's a, just go to the bookstore right now, you'll find several cards that... that say that. It's a beautiful verse, but often we use it out of context, or at least a complete understanding of where it comes from. You probably wouldn't send that card to somebody and say, hey, in 70 years, I'm sure God has good plans for you, right? But that's the context of this scripture. That's what's happening. This wouldn't have been like a, a Mother's Day card. This would have been, what? You've got to be kidding me. We were planning for two years. And what you're telling me is that I am going to die in this place and my children are going to die in this place most likely and maybe our grandchildren can make it back. And you want me to do what while I'm here? 
Here's the first thing I want us to notice about this, this text. In very very first verse, it says, uh, and this is on our little outline this morning, it says, Nebuchadnezzar carried the people of Israel into exile, doesn't it? But if we keep reading the text in three other places, the Lord says, I carried you into exile. This is what I want you to recognize, and I want myself to recognize. Who carried them into exile? Nebuchadnezzar or the Lord? What do you think? The Lord. But here's the, here's the reality. Sometimes God uses difficult circumstances, people we don't like, even enemies, to teach us a lesson, to discipline us. That's, that's a hard thing to hear. These people, this person, God even calls him my servant in Scripture, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. They might have killed some of these Israelites. People died along an 800-mile journey, and they're saying, you're telling me you did this? Mm. It's hard sometimes to grasp and wrap our brains around the fact that God loves us enough to discipline us even in the most difficult of ways, through the most difficult of people. God's plans are bigger than ours. He sees what we can't. We have to trust that he's using all things in our lives for his glory to accomplish his will. So they're, they're camping out, they're hanging out, they're hoping it's only two years and they realize there's not gonna be any shortcuts to this. <laughs> there's no quick fix here. We have to have a long range vision and plan for what God's gonna do. God tells them to do this and he tells us to do the same thing here in Southwest Little Rock this morning. Get comfy, that's what he says. Get comfy, right? Make this place your home, don't withdraw from it, invest in it. Read verse five with me again. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your, your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the number, don't decrease. That's investment, right? Even more than our, our money, we're investing our children. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. It's almost as if the Lord's saying, this is hard to hear, isn't it? <laughs> I'm the one who did this. Trust me. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, God is saying this to, to the Israelites in Babylon. He's saying it to us as well. Get comfy, but know who you are. Know your identity. Know what you believe and why you believe it, right? So there was an expectation of the Lord that the Israelites would still live in the Mosaic Code. They would still honor God with how they lived in a society that was foreign to them. Does that sound familiar? It is. Peter calls us exiles, and, and James does as well. Both of them, chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Peter and James. He calls us exiles. That's who he's speaking to. God says this, he says, get comfy, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I exiled you. I love the fact that he, he, he mentions again three times 
that he's the one who exiled them. God calls the Jews not to just live in the city, but to love it and to work for its shalom. Rick said that this morning. You know, a lot of people think the word shalom is translated in the English peace. But the reality is shalom can't be translated from Hebrew to, to English in one word. It's too big. It's too all-encompassing. So if we were to define and truly say what the word shalom means, it would be more like this. It's economic, social, relational, spiritual flourishing and blessing, which brings peace. That's what shalom is. When you hope for the shalom of someone else, for a city, for a friend, and you know, in the Jewish culture when they meet each other, shalom. They're saying, may you be blessed in every possible way. You may have peace and will you, may you flourish in every possible aspect of your life. Tim Keller again says this. He says, loving the city strengthens the hands of the people of God who bear the message of the gospel to the world. When we love the city, it's like God is strengthening, strengthening our hands. He's, he's giving us influence. He's giving us inroads. He's blessing and helping us because we're the ones taking the message of God to the city. He strengthens us. In the early centuries of the church, in the early church, one of the reasons that the church began to flourish and just explode around the ancient world was because the people of God, Christians, began to actually do what God said to do. They began to serve the least of these. They began to help in areas that you could never imagine helping in. I read of a couple of places in, in 165 AD and in 251 AD, there were two great plagues. They were so horrific that each plague killed one-third of all the people of the world. Each plague, each time. But Christians loved. People who didn't know Christ, they were throwing people that even looked like they were sick into the gutter, along with the dead. They didn't want to have anything to do with it, but Christians, they began to seek the prosperity and the peace of those people, and they loved on them. They cared for them, even if it meant they got sick and they died. And one of the Roman rulers by the name of Julian said this. He said, the followers of the way support not only their poor and sick but ours as well. People were drawn to the love of Jesus by the way the people of Jesus loved. Listen, if you look back over history, if you just take a look back over uh, culture and history, you can see the influence, a beautiful influence of Christ. Listen, society, education, government, science, art, Healthcare, all byproducts of Christians seeking the peace and prosperity of the world. Third thing he told them to do was to do this. He said, pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, then you too will prosper. Have you ever prayed for somebody you just really didn't like? I mean, you just prayed and you just forced yourself. I'm going to keep praying, Lord, I don't like them but I'm praying for him. And then all of a sudden something happened you weren't expecting to happen. God changed your heart for that person. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen that happen in your life? See, I don't think it's possible to actually pray for somebody without loving them. You may start off feeling that way, but eventually God will begin to change your heart. And turn your heart. Maybe that's the reason some of us choose to not pray. 
because we know God's going to change our hearts and we have a spirit of Jonah. I don't have anything to do with it, God. My wife and I live, I've told you this before, we live next to an Indian couple from India and uh, we love them. We love their children. And I've just noticed over the last few years that we've been praying for their salvation and for their, their shalom. <laughs> we've been praying for their lives and for their jobs and their relationship and trying to do ministry with them. God has placed a, a, a deep love in, in our hearts for Indians. <laughs> All of a sudden we see Indians and we go, oh, we just feel drawn to them. It's amazing how God does that in us. Listen, we're going to close this morning, but I want you to know three things. God's called us to the same things that he called those Israelites to in the middle of their captivity. You are exiles in this culture, kind of like they were. First thing he wants us to do is make our home here. Love this place. Love in it. Invest in it. Don't withdraw from it. Honor Christ. Philippians 3.20 says this, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, not if, right? When they speak against you as evildoers, they can't help but see your good deeds and glorify God. Peter speaks to Christians in 1 Peter. He calls them resident aliens, which is kind of a weird connection of words. He's saying, your residents, in other words, live here, thrive here, uh, be a part of this culture here, but be aliens, be connected to another home, to another set of values. Make this place your home, but ultimately it's not your home. We have to be ambassadors for Christ, right? What does an ambassador do in another country? What does an ambassador knows a culture? He most likely knows a language. He, he appreciates a language. He appreciates a culture. Uh, Brother Jerry loves Hispanics. He loves Spanish-speaking people and countries and, and Masu. They, they have a heart for these people. To this day, even though they, they're not back in the mission field that they were, they love spending time with Hispanics. They love speaking Spanish, and it's awesome. I just kind of like hanging around them when they're doing that. You know, it's awesome to hear them speak that. They were ambassadors when they lived there. They, they lived in one country, but they represented another. They represented the values and interests of another. God wants us to seek the peace and prosperity of this place to make it better. Matthew 5, 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God through your Father who is in heaven. As we serve this city, as we love this city, as we're invested in this city, the people of this city, we work to make it better. Even people who have nothing to do with God and want nothing to do with God, they won't be able to help but look at the things God is doing and go, I mean, that's amazing. I saw on Facebook the other day, Tim Tebow, he has a little uh, thing for, for special needs children. It's a prom. 
He put on, they put on 375 special needs proms around the world in 11 different countries, including, uh, not including the United States. And I'm a big softie anyway, so I'm sitting there watching this thing, and he's on Jimmy Fallon, and, and uh, they've worked it out where there's a, a special needs student in the audience, and he has a corsage to place on her wrist, and he calls her down, and he puts a corsage on her wrist, and he has a dance with her because he didn't get to make it to her prom. I'm just bawling my eyes out, right? And it just hit me. This is just a couple days ago. It just hit me. That's what this is talking about. When we do things that even non-Christians look at and go, that's beautiful. That's incredible. When we see that kind of thing, that is letting our light shine so that even pagans, even non-believers say, that's pretty amazing. God is good. God wants us to pray for our city. And, and not just pray for our city, pray for the shalom of our city. Do we pray for our city? I know I'm sensitive to it this week because I've been in this all week. But uh, I was driving, I have to come over Chanel to come out to work and there's a spot right around the gap or around the not gap, the old navy right there that you can you can just see the city sitting out downtown. And I just saw it and I hadn't noticed it that much before. I just kind of drive to work. But I saw it this week. I noticed it and I thought, every day I hope that I can notice it again. So that I can just pray over it. Not just for that little section of geography, for all of the city. That God would do a work in us and through us so that we could see him do amazing things in our city. I want to close our, our time together doing this. I want us to pray. We're going to pray for the shalom of the city. So I, I haven't even, I should have talked to several of you before I did this, so forgive me. You have to love me. Right? So we're going to, we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask several of you to come and pray. Brother Jerry, would you come? Rick, do you mind coming and praying as well? Uh, Bob, would you come? Rick Caldwell, do you mind? Ural, would you come and pray for us? Um, you grab the mic there, uh, Brother Jerry. This is what I'm going to ask us to pray for. We're going to put it on the screen. We're going to pray for the shalom of Little Rock which includes these things. And I'm going to ask each of these men to pray over one of these areas, okay? Rick, would you pray over our, uh, our uh, social needs of the city? And Brother Jerry, would you pray over the spiritual needs of the city? Uh, Bob, would you pray over the economic needs of the city? And, and Ural, would you pray over the relational needs of the city? As these men, men pray, and listen, we're, we'll sing a song after they finish, but would you pray with us? This is not a time for us to listen to their prayer. It's a time for us to join them in prayer for our city. Some of you may want to be on your knees. Some of you may want to come to the altar. But listen, God has called us to get comfy and live here. Make this our home and love it. And he's called us to bring peace and prosperity to this city. And he's called us to pray. It's our privilege this morning for us to pray for the shalom of Little Rock. Would you pray? Uh, economic needs of the city. Would you pray for us first, Bob? Lord, 
people do have needs and they have physical needs, economic needs. We know that there's people that are hurting today, but Lord, somehow may you use us. May we become a light even in the economic realm of this city. Lord, I pray for politicians, for those that are in positions of leadership, that you'd give them wisdom, that you'd help your people to influence ways that the economic needs of this city can be met, but met in a way that will honor and glorify you, that your people will be a part of it, that your people will bring healing in this area, that people that are hungry can be fed, people that are needy can see those needs met because people love you and that somebody really does care about them, and especially you do. May that be what we'll reflect in our lives, Lord. May South City Church be a church that's willing to partner with folks that are trying to help people in need. And Lord, as those needs are met, above all else, may you be represented, may you be honored, may you be glorified, may people be directed toward Jesus Christ, that when that physical need is met, they'll say, hey, Jesus is the one that can meet my basic eternal and spiritual need. And that they'll be drawn to Jesus Christ because of His Word and His people. And Lord, just let us be a part of that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Lord, we come to you and we pray for the social needs of our city. Lord, the there's the thought of the social needs, the diversity of the social needs, just the, the fatherless children, the disconnected families, the loneliness, the, the deep, deep social needs of our city that, that can't be met just by throwing money or another program. It can only be met by us opening our hearts and getting involved hand in hand with those around us. Lord, just create within this group today a social sensitivity, just an awareness to look at those around them as you look at them. Help us see the hurting as you see them. Help us show them the love that is a reflection of your love. Lord, people do not really care what we as a church know until they know that we care. So help us see the problem as a potential opportunity to lavish people with your love and your kindness and your generosity. Father, first of all, I would like to say thank you so much for letting me be part of South City Church. And Father, we pray that as the song says, red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in your sight. We pray that we as people can see that and that we will do the same thing that you're doing, that we will, that will be precious in our sight whether they are rich or they are poor, whether they are mean or good, we, all, we need to understand that they all need you in their life. 
Father, we pray that you would teach another church to do that. Our Father, as we look at this city, especially southwest Little Rock, we so clearly see the hot winds of hell blowing across the city. The devil is on the loose. He's going to and fro deceiving lying everything that he can do to capture the innocent people oh God I pray that we your people of South City Church will get ourselves in a relationship with you that will allow us to combat the devil. Lord, I pray you will use us. You will fill us. Your Holy Spirit will overwhelm us. And we might be able to go forth with the powerful message of Jesus Christ that can defeat the devil and can cause a city to be set free. Use South City Church to reach Southwest Little Rock. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I mentioned in the message that I was going to tell you three stories. I only told you two. That's because number three is our story. It's yet to be written. And the neat thing is, you've each got a pen. You've each got something to give, and God has prepared your heart and your life, your resources, your gifts for such a time as this. What story are we going to write? What story are you going to write in this story? I believe God wants to do so much in us and through us if we'll just stay close to His side, Him leading us and directing us for His glory and our good.